0: Christian Parenting.
1: Are you struggling to balance your modern life and your faith? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Legacy Dads Podcast with Dave and Dante, offering biblical based wisdom and that weekly dose of what truly works in men's lives. The Legacy Dads Podcast, real men, authentic faith. Here are your hosts of the Legacy Dads Podcast. They're authentic, transparent, and not always politically correct. Dave and Dante. Hey everyone,
2: this is Dante from Legacy Dads with my partner Dave. Dave, my brother, what is going on? Hi, man. How are you? It's good to
0: see you. We are chugging you know, along. I, it's it's March.
2: Can you believe it? it? Yeah, I I know. I mean, like this year is flipping through. I you know I was going back and forth to Chicago and forgetting how much I did not like that drive. And you know, <laughs> but it, it's it's almost like I don't say it, but things are almost like getting a little bit back to normal. So it's kind of a nice pace. You know, you Mm. see restaurants getting a little bit more busy. You see people doing a little bit more normal activity. So, hey, you know what? There's a blessing in disguise. But anyways, and all that. But how's life in eggs over Miami? What's going on over there? You know, it's starting to heat up. We're getting ready for spring break season down here, so that's
0: always an interesting time. Usually, people end up either getting arrested or shot, one or the other, out on on South Beach. So we won't go down there, but uh, <laughs> we'll we'll find something. You know, last year for spring break, when the kids were on spring break, we went and drove on uh, like through Big Cypress and through the Everglades. And we saw alligators and all kinds of stuff. We, I think we talked about it actually in the podcast, but uh, yeah, you know, I pulled the kids out of the car and got them within feet of like alligators that were not in cages and stuff like real world type stuff. So good times. Uh, so we'll probably do something like that again. Maybe we'll go camping. I don't know, man. It's uh things are things are good just chugging right along
2: let's uh, do a little uh, business here before we do anything this podcast is for men husbands and fathers in all stages of life where we p- promote and advocate proven biblical principles for leaving a lasting legacy so dave who do we have with us here today so we are honored and privileged to
0: have josh white on the podcast today he is the author of stumbling toward eternity losing and finding ourselves in the cross of jesus which came out on february 28th He's an acclaimed speaker, he's a recording artist, he's a writer, he's the founding and teaching pastor of Door of Hope, a thriving church community of more than 1,500 in the heart of Portland. That's like living in Babylon, dude. We're going to talk about that. Where Josh (laughs) lives with his wife and his two older children, Josh has recorded multiple worship albums, including as the frontman of Telecast and produced many records, including Liz Vice's first album, There's a Light. When he's not traveling, preaching or leading door of hope, Josh is enjoying his family, obsessively reading, writing, and recording songs and trying to live the gospel message. Josh White, it's an honor to have you on the Legacy Dads podcast. Welcome, man. It's good to see you. Tell us a little bit more about
1: yourself. Thank you. Uh, well, come on. You live in Miami. I mean, really, it's, it's, it's like Babylon <laughs> I mean, here, right? It's let, us just say that all cities are Babylon for all cities <laughs> or are they yeah. all Babel. cities represent what man can do without God. That's why the church needs to be thriving in them. Amen. Um, amen. <laughs> amen. <laughs> um, yeah, well, yeah, my name's Josh. I, and I'm the lead pastor of a church called Dora Pope. I've actually uh, founded the church back in 2009 and, uh, um it's in the heart of the the east side which is kind of the bohemian center i mean really the the language where keep portland weird uh now i mean now it's like the bumper stickers like seems to be like keep portland lame um but (laughs) it's not the same city as when they started the church but it's a it's a place where God's called me. Uh, my wife and I met here actually clear back in 1996 before um, either of us were Christians. And when I was a secular artist uh, and uh, we we met at the, the Satyricon nightclub where Kurt, Kurt Cobain met Courtney Taylor. We were, uh, it was my first label showcase. And I was a little like hopeful rock star. And uh, my beautiful wife came in. I told her she's the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life. And she bought it. And we' we're, we're still together. Although the band that I opened for got the fame, and the lead singer and I were both kind of going after Darcy, he got the he got the fame. I got the girl, so it's cool. Um, I think but we I always had a hard win. We got <laughs> yeah <So laughs> once we get once we came to faith, um, we always had this kind of desire. We were living in Seattle and then Spokane and then California. Um, and we just always wanted to go back to where we're both from. We're from the Northwest, both from the Portland area. And so um, it was quite an adventure uh, to launch a church in a city that is the least church city in the U.S. So that's the reputation. I don't know if that's true, but I, what I do know is it's the first truly post-Christian city in the U.S. Um, and uh, it's it's been um, the the benefit of being in a post-Christian place uh, that's so different from uh, from the Bible Belt um, and even even other metropolitan areas in the U.S. is that. People have no; they don't have any actual baggage. Uh, they don't have Christian language. They they've never heard of Hillsong. They've never heard of Bethel. They don't they don't know what Gospel Coalition is. They don't know who Tim Keller is. They don't you know this like they don't have any vocabulary. I mean, it's truly the wild west out here. Uh, a great example: my son, who's twenty one and lives in New York City now, um, he he didn't have a single Christian peer growing up in in Portland um, at, at his school. It, Portland Public Schools. And that, I mean, that kind of shows you uniqueness. And our explosion of growth was not amongst grade school kids and high school kids. It was amongst young millennials who moved to the city to get away from probably their churchy backgrounds or any conservative realities, you know. So, Portland is a city, they say, where young adults move to retire. <laughs> so. Yeah, <exactly>. um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's here that it became kind of a place where the, kind of the centrality of the cross became, That's the, we have four pillars our church is built on, which is the cross, life together, simplicity in the city. And uh, I'm very evangelistic. I work with the, with the Palau's, uh, the, uh, Luis Palau, who passed away a couple of years ago, major evangelism association. And um, I started working with them because I believe that church transfer growth is not church growth. And when I started the church, I became known in Portland for being the pastor that told people not to come if they didn't live in the city and um, if they left their church unless they had a good reason they needed to go back. And so sometimes that was too effective, like one week losing 200 people in one week because I told them not to come back. <laughs> and so, but, but it pushed us to be truly um, outward focused in inviting people consistently into the church. And in 14 years, I've never had anyone get mad at me. For sharing jesus with them uh which is like a complete i get so mad when i read like reports they're like millennials today are you know uh disenchanted and and hostile toward the gospel and like i'm like i don't think that's true i'm like who's writing these reports <laughs> I, i'm like my i'm convinced that the guys that write these reports are pastors who don't actually share the gospel with non-christians <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but uh, yeah, that's not been the experience at Door Pope. I find that people are actually, they're hungry. They're curious. They may not be, they may not be interested, but they're not hostile.
2: <laughs> for, our li- for our listeners, Josh, like your church, how many uh, parishioners or how many uh, attenders and members do you have?
1: Well, that was a really um, inflated, like hyperbolic, uh, we, before <laughs> COVID, before COVID, we were, yeah, we were probably 1500 to 2000. And like every church, uh, if you weren't, if you didn't become hyper-political or, or extremely liberal, um, you you probably got your church cut in half. Um, and so, um, Adore of Hope actually weathered, um, COVID pretty well. I mean, you you guys saw Portland was like a spectacle during COVID. It was, it went and it's been a difficult city to stay in. And, um, but, it, but what we're seeing right now is like kind of this renewal where, you know, it's like, like 800 people, 900 people. It's like, it's just growing and it's a lot of new people and a lot of new people coming to faith. So it's a very, I, I actually was so relieved when we got reduced in numbers. Um, it's scary, but in some ways, like, I don't know, if, I don't think we're human beings are meant to try to shepherd 2000 people. I, I would much rather grow by staying small and just planting more churches. <laughs> like, cause because uh, it, it's, it's, it's creates this massive burnout. It isolates the shepherd. The people aren't getting what they need. It creates the celebrity culture that's can be really unhealthy. And, uh, you know, I'm pushing for like a really radical vulnerability. I want my church to function more like an AA meeting. Um, you know, so I want to, so I'm the pastor. They'll say, uh, You guys, I I just have to confess to you because I think I see the guy in the back row, but on the way to church today, there was a cyclist in front of me and he wouldn't get on my way and he kept swerving in front of me and I tried to hit him. And then I sped by him and he flipped me off and I may have yelled something back, but then I do think I just saw your bike in the bike rack and I'm really sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Life is mixture. (laughs) So so people are like, no, the pastor should be holier than us. I'm like, yeah. I think we need to love Jesus and trust his holiness more than our own, probably.
2: <laughs> Dave and I are always quick to say we're jerks on a journey. So if you want to use that one for the next Sunday service, you can do yeah. that.
1: Maybe that'll be book number two. Stumbling go. toward eternity, kind of the same idea.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, I, Josh, I like how you talk about, you know, how maybe perhaps we're not meant to shepherd, you know, thousands of people. I mean, when you look at Jesus' example, he had 12 that he, that he sent out. And even they, you know, they what, you know, they had, what, 500, Jesus appeared to 500, you know, in Acts. And so, um, so even then, like, you know, we're not looking at massive numbers. And so I think there's a biblical precept for that. And, and I think we're allowed to, you know, ex- at least examine that, because, you know, one thing that we've kind of been focusing on this year is identity. And it's interesting, you talk about vulnerability, because in order to have community with other people, you know, Brene Brown noted very well-spoken, well-researched, individual right millions of views on her ted talk on vulnerability she said the number one thing you need to have in order to have community with other people is vulnerability like you have to have that you have to be excruciatingly vulnerable to be able to have that level of connection with people and i don't think you get that when you're you know trying to trying to um, you know, just work with thousands of people, and so i I can kind of appreciate that perspective in light of all yeah. that i'd be interested to kind of hear your journey a little bit so you said you know you you moved to portland and uh and you met your wife in nineteen ninety six when you were secular, and then at some point you came to christ and and would you be willing to share maybe a little bit of your, a little bit of your testimony that kind of um, that you were able to walk through that. And then, because I think that's important to, you know, when we start getting into the book a little bit, you know, what, like what's the history of Josh for lack of better words.
1: Yeah. I grew up in Longview, Kelso, Washington, which is this, like these two, uh, there's two depressed mill towns on the Columbia river, uh, that sits organs across the, the biggest cantilever bridge, you know, before 1930, uh the to Rainier, Oregon. And I kind of was like a yo-yo between Rainier, Oregon and Longview. I lived in pretty deep poverty. My mom and dad divorced when I was one, went through, you know, stepdad's, you know, pretty troubled, uh, difficult youth. And so, you know, when I discovered, I think I lived most of my childhood in early in my teen years as feeling invisible. Um and, you know, I was when you uh when you find yourself in that place you have no male role model no no father figure except for hot and cold stepdads what i call in the book ste- uh, stand-in dads <laughs> um, uh, they you know it, it creates an insecurity and you know we're men boys boys can smell insecurity like a horse can smell fear <laughs> and and so i just became very um uh, an easy target consistently and i moved every single year of my life to until I was 11, I changed schools every year. So it just made for a very hard start. But that kind of crushing reality also created in me like the underdog ambition. Um, And I discovered songwriting when I was 19. And people took notice. And it was just like, it was like the first time I felt like I'd ever been seen. And so I moved to Seattle and just pursued it with like a vengeance. um, Until, you know, within two years, um, I had you know, within the first two years of playing in Seattle, we had we became quickly one of the biggest bands in the Northwest. And uh, we ended up getting signed to a Portland label. I was living in Seattle, we signed to a Portland label called Tim Kerr Records. And it was in a time, it's a weird time because it was before you know the explosion of the internet, it was before iTunes or smartphones. And so that was the time when radio controlled, you know, controlled, you know, hits. Uh, and it was a time where, like so many markets where the music industry was getting like it was shrinking because labels were buying labels and everything was consolidating and everybody wanted a piece of the grunge the grunge puzzle. And so Mercury Records bought the little small Tim Kerr was kind of like Seattle's sub-pop records, and so we got bought up by a major label. So we were like this new little indie band. I was only 22 years old, and all of a sudden, we're on a major label and being told we have to compete at a national level radio-wise. And so I met my wife right when we got signed. It took a year for the record to come out, and it came out a week after we got married. And within two months of being married, I was dropped because my single flopped at radio. And, uh, and that actually put me very quickly into a very premature existential crisis. <laughs> Cause for me, everything was driven by the desire to be famous. You know, I just, I mean, fame was actually more important to me than probably the music in many ways, because it, it fed, it fed a wound that kind of laid open, which is uh, people notice me now. And, uh, um, when that started to fall apart, you know, my whole foundation identity <laughs> was a, was definitely challenged in on a in a big way. And I just two years into the marriage start, my wife quickly became disenchanted. You know, she thought she was marrying a rock star. And then all of a sudden she's like, you know, she's working full time and I'm like sleeping until one in the afternoon and rehearsing and chasing a dream that already seemed to be pretty crushed. And she was like, This is not what I signed up for. And she was on the verge of leaving me. And I remember picking up a Bible when I was 20 26 years old in 1999 and started just reading through the gospels and i uh, you know a lot of people talk about you know i was at this church and i heard a sermon it's like for me i actually just i met jesus through reading matthew <laughs> and uh, i just kept reading the sermon on the mount over and over again and i was obsessed with that that single line at the end of chapter 5 therefore be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect and i was like that's a joke. I I just remember reading it and I was like obsessed with it, but I was also so frustrated. And I was like, I remember getting ready to throw my Bible across the room. I'm like, I can't be perfect. That's, that's the problem. I need someone to save me. Mm-hmm. And it was when it like something, I think the Holy Spirit just like, that's why it's there. It's because <laughs> yeah. you can't be perfect. Yep. It's meant to drive you to a place of, of, of desperation of need. And I just cried out, and I'm like, Jesus, if you're real, I just need you to save me. And I, I think you are real. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I kind of had one of those primitive where I was praying something similar to Scripture that I didn't even know was in Scripture, which is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And, uh, um, and I met Christ uh, like through just reading the Word, but then I was like, I n- knew I needed something more, and I there's so much I didn't understand. So I found a little, a little uh, Calvary Chapel community in Wallingford, and my wife was. Just beside herself. She's like, oh my gosh, I don't know what's worse. Like you as like a wannabe rock star or you as a born again Christian. I mean, she was just not having it. <laughs> I remember the church sent like two people, a young couple that we became very close with to like introduce themselves and welcome me to the church. And Darcy and I were in the middle of a fight about, about my faith. And she was like, who's at the door? And I'm like, it's a couple from church. And she's like, she's like, I don't want any blank, blank Christians yeah. in my house. You're right. enough.
2: Yeah. No more. No more. No mas. No mas. Mm-hmm.
1: That woman actually ended up being a key person in leading my wife to the Lord two years after I came to faith. And so, um, yeah, so like two, kind of two years so it was pretty intense and I'm so obsessive. Like my personality is a, like, whatever I get into, it's like, it's 150%, you know, it's like I go from zero to 60 with no, you know, it's like by the time within five months, you know, I'd read everything by C.S. Lewis. I'm like, I was reading G.K. Chester Chan and I was using apologetics, like trying to argue my wife into the into heaven, which is not the way to her heart on any level. <laughs> and uh, um, and yeah, just what what it took actually was God really getting a hold, not just of my, of my mind, but really getting a hold of my heart about a year into the faith. And I realized that I'd put my faith in Jesus to save me, but I really hadn't surrendered to him as Lord. And uh, I had this kind of breaking point because I thought now that I'm saved, he's for sure going to make me famous. Like you and you and I, Jesus, I have a good plan. You seem to have a good plan. Let's work together. We're going to make this thing happen. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had this kind of incredible like moment where I realized that I still was holding very tenaciously onto my own dreams. And the death of the dream was, uh, was me. I got it. I had just gotten a new management with this big, this manager in San Jose that managed actually managed smash mouth and third eye blind. Remember those bands. And he had gotten me this big showcase with Keona Reeves band in LA. And uh, I was like, going to play for all these labels. And like, we'd already been signed. So people knew who I was. And so I was like, Oh, this is going to be great. And the Lord just told me to quit. And so I quit the band. Like, quit the band. And I went on a mission trip instead to Russia. And uh, that's where I wrote my first worship song. It's where I first had the opportunity to share the gospel with pe- people and see them come to faith. And it was just revolutionary. And my wife saw something so radically transformed in me after that trip that she began to be like, Oh, there might be something to this. And she started going to church and then met some lovely young women. And this is amazing. She comes to faith. We have our first child. We have two kids, Henry, um in in 2001 a month after 9-11 and uh she has this radical conversion in the middle of the night like she had been praying every night um god draw near to me and i'll draw near to you like james in reverse mm-hmm. and like jesus just met her she's and she kept saying specifically jesus um if you're real draw near to me and i'll draw near to you and i woke up in the morning and she was nursing henry and i just like i, I the first words out of my mouth was what happened because she just had. She just was radiant. And she's like, I met Jesus last night. And I was like, whoa. Six months later, I get a call and offered full-time ministry at a church in Spokane. And, and the same week I got offered a record deal, like God gave me my music back but this time through a Christian label to do a worship album. Um, and that was with B.C. Tooth and Nail. Uh, so it was like in the era of like Jeremy Camp and Cutlass and all that, I, I was I knew nothing about Christian music. So that's a whole nother story. But um, <laughs> we, went <to> Spokane, <laughs> we went to Spokane and I became a worship pastor and I formed Telecast there. Um, and that was like 2002. We did the first record. And then I thought my music career was done. I was just going to make music for a church. And all of a sudden our record took off. And I found myself on tour uh, for a year um, like between 2003 and four. And I played 265 shows um, and saw every facet of American evangelicalism, including in European trips as well. And uh, at the end of it, you know, I'm like, I missed my son's second, and third birthday. And I was like, this isn't, uh, this isn't the time for me to be gone this much. And so I'm not going to be an absent father. Like my dad was absent. And so, I, at the peak of our success, we had a top 10 single for five months with the song Beauty of Simplicity. And I quit I, I quit the band and took a job in Southern California at a big church and uh, started And that, on tour. I would get frustrated because the bands I was opening for wouldn't talk about Jesus. And I was so zealous that I would talk more than I would sing. And I kept getting in trouble. I even got in trouble from Louie Giglio because he was managing David Crowder called my label because i would i wouldn't play the songs before in our set i would just share <laughs> so i so, still feel bad i've never been able to tell him sorry i did that it's kind of a rebellious young man um and uh, i took the job at in california and i started cutting my teeth preaching but it was on the road people kept me like i think you might be a preacher <laughs> and so yeah. i was like let's test it out and had a service that grew before coming back to portland in 2007. I worked at a church for 2 years under another pretty well-known author now um John Mark Comer. Uh and uh, him and his father had started a church in Beaverton and I worked there for 2 years before starting Dora Pope. So yeah, it's a big journey. <laughs> it's been a wild ride.
0: Man, that's that's <laughs> truly like that's pretty awesome, you know, when you just look at the different ways where God was just present and faithful, you know, and and just, you know, helping to bring you to him first. And then even if it took a couple of years, I mean, just putting other women in your wife's life in order to bring her and just the way that he works is miraculous and amazing. And, uh, and it's nothing to, um, to just kind of dismiss and be like, oh, it's just coincidence because it really isn't right. Like God no. knows, knows his plans. <laughs> like God has yeah. a way and it's not our way. Um, but man, it's, uh, it's, it's really awesome. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, yeah, Dante, Dante, what you got, man?
2: I, you know, so I, I'm just, there's a lot packed in there in just the whole process. And it's, it's funny because like we I love that you talk about the Lordship, and you know you got saved, and there was conversion in Matthew, and then all of a sudden you realize that, um man, something's not right, you know, it's my will. I'm still on my throne room, and all of a sudden, wait, I, I don't understand this lordship. And so you know, from uh, from a you know rock band guy to a grunge band guy to a all of a sudden, I'm getting into Christian music mission trip. And then all of a sudden, somebody affirms that I have the gift of preaching. Again, there's more affirmation than there's cutting your teeth. At what point, you know, did you really come to terms of, you know, not my will, but your will be done? And just seeing how the Lord, all of a sudden, just says, Josh, I do have plans for you. I do know who you are, and I want you to go this route. Like is that something like you and your wife have ever expressed, either via community, small group testimony, traveling, mission? Like where does this all come together as far as knowing what God specifically called you to?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, what what I like to say is like I think we often think that, you know, we give our life to Jesus. We, you know, we have this like aha moment, we surrender, uh, we surrender to him as Lord. Um but we forget that, you know, in my book, I, I refer to it, I call it the good death. And so it, it really is the Roman's road, but the Roman's road isn't like a singular event. Like when Paul sums up all his theology and the hit like in enters into the practical application starting in Romans 12, he's like, therefore, you know, I beg you brothers and sisters by the mercy of God, that you present yourself a living sacrifice. So it's like, which means that, there's a daily, what I call a daily death to the lie of what God never intended, so that we can come alive in Him, and that our surrender is actually the thing that that allows. You know, people always ask me questions about the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, there's there's this because I'm such a cro- we're such a cross-centered church. Our church is filled with a wide spectrum of like charismatic to reformed. <laughs> like so, people are like, "Are you guys charismatic?" I'm like, "Well." I would call myself charismatic with a seatbelt. <laughs> like, so, um, and uh, you know, this, but what does it mean to be filled with the spirit? And I'm like, it's the spirit. Isn't something he's someone is you get all the spirit you're ever going to get when you get saved, when you're born again, being filled. is is not you getting more of the Holy spirit. It's the Holy spirit getting more of you. And that's something we're commanded to do. So it's a daily surrender, a daily sacrifice. And so uh, I've had many moments where dreams have had to die hard (laughs) throughout the ministry. I have to say like that statement, God has a perfect plan for your life. Um, You know, we we have to be careful to not like create false expectations that coming to Jesus means that like, you know, it's going to hurt at first, but then it's going to be like, it's all amazing. It's like on this side of eternity, it is a continual stumbling. Um, and you know, it got as a perfect plan, but for us personally, it might mean, be quite difficult. And there have been seasons where it felt impos- impossible, impossible, because I think life is more than difficult. I think it's often impossible and it's absolutely terminal. <laughs> and so, uh, with, you know, so it's fine. It's about finding the the peace of Jesus in the midst of, of, you know, it's the question you Know do you guys also want to leave me when he asked Peter after he gave a hard teaching? and like mm-hmm. where where else can we go? Yeah. The yeah. the of life? And so for me, that that surrender is like every time we we allowed the spirit to put to death in us, something that we you know, when we let him kill our darlings essentially, it's there's something that, that it brings us, it strengthens faith and brings an ever-increasing um freedom and a deeper awareness of his presence. It's and and it makes us more and more reliant. I always say the longer I walk with Jesus, I don't see sin less in my life. I see it more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because And can't come into the light without oh. being revealed. But but my res- the response is and that is why I give you full responsibility, Lord. Because He doesn't just want this or that part of me. He wants the whole part, the whole thing, which includes the, the glitchy and the broken and the dumb, <laughs> as well as the gifts. I think we all think like, I'm going to give him my gifts. I'm not going to make him deal with the the dark stuff. So it's it's really a question of like, what are we holding back? And I think the more it's what, what deal Moody experienced when he heard as a shoe salesman, you know, a preacher say the world is yet to see what God can do through a man or a woman who has fully surrendered to him. And Moody's just like, well, I'm going to be that guy. <laughs> and uh, and I, that always inspired me. And so I would say that, you know, spiritual illumination is not dependent upon an intellectual capacity. Um, I really, it really has to do with, with, you know, not many wives were told are chosen, not, not many powerful. It's the, I mean, you're talking to a guy, I'm a lead pastor who has a gold front tooth and a throat tattoo. I mean, it's not normal. <laughs> now your listeners are like I'm not going to read that book.
2: Yeah. No, it's <laughs> um, hard. <laughs> and you know, and I th- I think from that standpoint, it's it's you know, you, you hear like, okay, some listeners or that are just coming on to this or legacy dads or moms that are out there like, oh man, you know, just listening to Josh's testimony, like all these dreams, all these plans that I have, they're just gonna be crushed. And, you know, and I think that I think you get into it of the lordship, but you know, we talk about the abundant life and it doesn't mean without trial or tribulation it doesn't mean without pain or just peeling back of revealing who we really are but i think you know we we ask like test him you know and and just ask him like what does he want and be in that c- continual conversation and i think from that standpoint of you know when we ask for things for his glory and not for ours you know, he will grant those wishes. He will meet us where we're at. And I think, you know, this is a great segue into you got this book that just came out last week and, and here we are and it's stumbling, um, you know, toward eternity, uh, toward eternity. And I think, you know, Dave and I always say that's, you know, two jerks on a journey here doing this podcast. I think that's a great way to seg- segue into you. what made you write this book tell us about the book tell our listeners that you know are looking to pick this up you know what you want them to glean from this and and what what inspired you to put this to paper to pen it
1: yeah um, well, I, well first of all I like I I always um, struggled in the classroom but thrived in the library so um, <laughs> so I'm a, a I, I'm I'm like a pretty weird Person, when it comes to uh, the amount that I like to read, um, and the the breadth of what I like like to read, I mean, I, mean, I really love literature, and uh, um, I, I love theology. I love literature, um, and and I, I love. Uh, I was I've been really fascinated with with literary memoir as a as a genre. So, I, like, I read all five thousand pages and six volumes of. Karl Oak Nosgaard's My Struggle, Norwegian author, biggest author in Norway, um, over, it, they released one volume every summer, <laughs> starting in like 2014. And I was like, it was like my summer thing every summer. Um, and I love Mary Carr. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of great, it, and within the Christian world, it, it's like kind of a missing genre. Uh, the only guy that I, I thought that that thought did that really well, I mean, I think Augustine did it well with Confessions, <laughs> but, uh, but it's a little archaic at this time. It has a lot to say, but it's it, but the modern reader I think can often struggle with the language. But uh, Frederick Beikner, who we lost this summer, I mean, he, he was his memoirs are wonderful, telling secrets. So that that I had kind of had this desire, you know, I I had such a challenging childhood, and I, I felt like I lived so much life before I even got saved, and then just from when I into faith and so much of my life has been about death to dreams and and to to answer that i would say that god often gives us what we want when we no longer need it and in a way that we did not expect it. (laughs) and so (laughs) um but uh but yeah the book really was uh, you know i've i feel like i read like everything that's been written on the centrality of the cross because that's a, a passion of mine i think that the church is divided right now between those that seek signs and those that seek knowledge. And I think that often you have one side, you know, you know, I I see the battles in, in, in the extremes, you know, hyper charismatic where it's like pride and experience and hyper reformed where it's pride and knowledge. And Paul just says, but we preach Christ crucified and that, that is so informed. And I just found that the topic of the cross was something I was hearing less and less about in the pulpit. And as, and as I travel, as a, as a speaker and, and engage in different circles and kind of, in, and it didn't really matter what theological camp. I, I felt like there was just, there was like a, a a waning interest in, in just the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel. You know, there was so, all these books, a million books that came out when I first entered into Dor started door Pope on what is the gospel. Um, uh, but I mean, since John Stott's book, the cross of Christ, like there, you know, I was so grateful for Fleming Rutledge's tome, the crucifixion that came out a few years ago, but I knew that that was like probably the average person in the pew is not going to read that. And so I, I just had this, this desire. I've talked through them a bunch of times which take the seven words from the cross. And the seven words of the cross are so fascinating because the the seven words, that there are seven statements that Jesus makes from the cross. And each statement he makes seems to carry with it what I would call a fatal blow to one arena of our self-sufficiency. But on the other side of that is always resurrection life when we allow that good death to happen. And I had had this memoir that I was writing about my life. And, um, and I had this book I was re- writing about, The Seven Words on the Cross. And so I met with my editor, uh, Paul Pastor, who's a good friend of mine. He had just um, helped Luis Palau write his book that came out a couple of years before he passed. And uh, he, he he's like, I'm like, I actually wanna just bring my memoir straight to Penguin. I, I don't think I wanna re- release it with a Christian publisher. Um, I, like, I don't want him to mess with my story and I know what they'll do. And, uh, and I go, but I have this book that's the, and he goes, Josh, you're a pastor and you have this Christian audience, you have an influential church. He's like, if you go straight to Penguin, you're going to bypass your whole audience. And he goes, I really think it would be cool if you would consider trying to merge the two books into one. And Hmm. I stupidly said yes, because it was so much harder (laughs) than I expected, but it actually ended up being a really profound journey. And you know i've been kind of secretly writing for years and for me i didn't want to <laughs> i got approached by all these publishers when i first started because of its growth and i'm like i would I'd meet with them I'm like why would i sign a book deal with you you don't even know if i can write or not <laughs> they're like oh we have people that will help you with that and i'm like no that's not okay <laughs> and so i'm like when i when i i'm like, i agree with tozer no person should write anything as a Christian that's meant to be for the church, unless it's a fire that burns so fiercely in their heart that they cannot rest until it comes out. And that's Mm kind of what came to me. It got to the point where I'm like, I can't not write this. I like it actually will do damage to me mentally. And I started to just really first I had the memoir pieces, which I had to just get out and so many stories that I had so fascinating, how our, how our remembrance of an event, actually has more impact on us than what maybe did or didn't happen in the event. So I had to kind of wrestle through those. And so first I wrote the memoir, and then I had to pick the stories that I thought fit into the seven words because I didn't want to force anything. And then I had to go back to each of those stories and look at them with a pastoral eye and begin to like actually... Allow the Holy Spirit to do kind of a healing work in my own life, unreconciled relationships. And then the main relationship of the book that I deal with the most is my relationship with my dad, who passed away a year ago on February 8th. and um, and the you know he left when my family when my family when I was one and was a lifelong drug and alcohol drug user and alcohol severe alcoholic. Um, he died of COPD smoked two packs of cigarettes a day drank a liter of vodka every day uh i mean he was he was like a cockroach i was teasing that he's a cockroach because he like he would go to the icu almost dead and be nursed back to health and i mean he died at 69 years old but sh- shockingly, that was way longer than he should have based upon how hard he was on his body but a lot of the book had to deal with father forgive them for they know not what they do like like I'm looking at my relationship with my dad and my earliest man, the first story in my book is my my earliest memory is my mom and dad uh, fighting over me and me in the back of the car crying, scared because my dad had showed up drunk and decided he was going to take me because I was his son too. And he's like drunk. And my mom hitting him in the head with a rock and, uh, um, and they're screaming. And I just remember being terrified. My mom said I was crying, you know, um, mama, don't let him take me. And him screaming, he's my son too. I visit my dad 44 years later and bring up that event. He lived in a cabin all by himself in Soldotna, Alaska, like in the middle of nowhere. And he's like smoking his camel reds and drinking his vodka. And he's got breathing tube in his nose, which you're not supposed to smoke when you're using that. And he looks at me, and he goes, I'm still pissed at you for that, son. And I'm like, <laughs> for what? And he goes, that you didn't want to be with me. Mm. And I'm like... I was two years old, and right. he's like, he goes, "I'm still pissed." And then he just kind of went, and he had this way of like he would he would go side he would say something, and then he would just kind of trail off into silence and go back into sort of this lonely space in his head. Um, I think just all the years of isolation and drug use. And I remember just sitting there, and I was like, "How can he say that to me? Like how like it's just crushing." And I hate it was just suffocating the smoke, and it was permafrost. You know, it's like permanent darkness outside, like 20 below. I'm like, I am in hell. This is the worst place in the world. And I was just, as I looked at him and I saw him struggling to breathe and he was looking out the window. And I just had the Holy Spirit, just this compassion kind of came over me and I kind of saw him as a child. And I just remember looking at him and saying, I'm sorry, dad. And, uh, um, you know, I'm apologizing for this thing, but really what I realized is what he needed was he needed grace and grace is always unfair. It's always unfair because uh, it, it it's love without contingency. And it says, honor your mother and father. And it doesn't say if they were awesome. <laughs> it's like, which I used to be bummed about until I had kids. And then I was really grateful there was no contingency. <laughs> and then and I just remember my dad said, he goes, uh, it's okay, Josh, your dad, your old man's just having a hard time. And he couldn't walk at this point. And he's like, he goes, I, am usually tougher than this. And I'm like, I know dad. It, uh, and I just said, I just said, I love you. And he's like, I love you too, son. And then we, he stopped talking and I, so crazy. I look at the television screen and he always had the classic TV channel playing. So it was playing like he watched Bonanza, Magnum P.I., the, Walt- the Waltons and Little House on the Prairie. And I think it's because it made him feel like he was around a family, maybe a family he never had or something. But we were watching Little it was Little House on the Prairie. And I watched that obsessively as a kid. And it was a very specific episode. It was the episode where Pa Ingalls' boy is dying and he's mm. praying in a field that God would save him. And I just felt like it was some, and I remember the, there's an angel appears to him and tells him this boy is going to be healed. And it's like this miraculous episode, um, And which is funny that he would go on to star and touch by an angel. But um, uh, my obnoxious pop trivia brain. Uh, but in that moment, I just felt like it was some strange portent. And I just, I prayed the same for my dad. And like, Jesus saved my dad. And that was like, kind of the beginning of like the healing journey. But that's, that's sort of the opening. It's like, then I think, Father, forgive them. He's like, it's not Jesus wrestling with a reluctant dad. He says, "I only speak those things which please the Father." It's so dangerous when we divide up the Godhead in a way where all of a sudden we have them at odds with one another. Jesus is reflecting the Father's heart, which is the good news. God is a forgiving God. The unfortunate news is there's a lot that needs to be forgiven. <laughs> and so, uh, so that's kind of how the book kind of came together and how I was able to kind of begin to see my own story and all of us, it's the universal connection of like, we all have painful parts in our past. We all have, my dad's name was Alexander. We all have, we went by Al. Everybody knows him (laughs) now. And starts raising those questions. If if I say I have faith that Jesus will save me, why can't I, how can I be okay with not having faith that he can save my dad? You know, if I I have faith that he loves me, why would I hold out the belief that he loves my dad? And I think it does, as I started realizing that, the loveless Christian is actually not a thing; <laughs> it doesn't exist. So, the so the cross became kind of this kind of center of gravity for me to enter into very very complicated and nuanced relationships that have caused a tremendous amount of pain um, and to find healing and beauty. Um, and like I miss my dad, and he wasn't a good dad. He wasn't available. <laughs> I remember once I said, "I'm like, I'm like, Dad." Um, I'm like, you know, he he said to me, he goes, I'm never going to apologize for how I raised you. And I was like, what are you talking about? You didn't raise me. And he's like, blankety blank. And he's like, Joshua, when I call you, I want to feel better, not worse. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, I guess we're done with that conversation. And it's like, so do I just cut him off, you know, or do I do it? I'm glad Jesus didn't cut me off is the point. <laughs> and that's the cross is the reminder that it's the, it is the place where, where thieves can become sheep. And it's a pretty profound thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. one one thing you write in the book is that the cross is not something to climb. It is something to die on again and again. Right. Yeah. And like we face all these different things and, you know, God just calls us over and over again. Like, Hey, like throw yourselves at the feet of the cross, right? Like, like put your faith in Jesus, uh, and put your faith in me, you know, and just like, Hey, again, yep. Mm-hmm. You're going to, you're going to go through some persecution. You're going to go through, you're going to go through some suffering and, and man, things are, things are going to be tough, but it's worth it. Yeah, it's all
1: paradox. Oh, it's yeah. all paradox. It's all paradox. Yeah.
0: You know, I, I love another thing you write in there is God can take the dissonant notes of our suffering and weave it into his redemptive song. I know that's a musical reference because the dissonant notes are the ones that are right next to each other half step off. Right. And so when you yeah. do like a, you know, like a C and a C sharp all together, like it sounds your your ears are just like, oh, gosh, that hurts my ears. Right. Yeah. And, but those dissonant notes of of the things that we walk through right? Where it just kind of hurts on our inside and, um, it doesn't make sense. Or maybe people see it and they're just like, oh gosh, that really, that really, it doesn't look comfortable, but God will take those things. And the things that Josh, that you have walked through and that I've walked through and Dante has walked through and, you know, so many of our listeners and, you know, everybody really around the world, that the things that people have walked through, God will take those things. When you make yourself available to him, you don't need to have any sort of ability. Like you just need to turn to him and just let him do his work and he'll mm-hmm. do amazing things. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think like this story in this book is just kind of a reflection of that. I mean, just the way that he has, you know, walked you through what, two and a half decades of, of life and just said, Hey, look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm doing. Uh, this is mm-hmm. 100% a reflection of what God is able to do. Um, even through the dissonant notes of, of, you know, either what we get ourselves into or, or what we're dealing with. And so, um, I just, I really appreciate all of the, uh, all of the, you know, testimony that you've shared and, and, and just mm-hmm. so much of the personal story and the personal aspects. I know the book gets into a whole lot more, but I think we should probably leave it mm-hmm. up to our listeners and your readers to kind of get into it and just mm-hmm. figure out what it looks like to stumble towards eternity because it is a yeah. stumble, right? I, I, I did a talk uh, with Dante actually up in Chicago back in October. And I talked about, so I like to do triathlons like that's my thing. And one of the most challenging triathlons in the world is up in Norway and it's called Norseman. And literally like the, the race profile, when you look at it, it's almost like riding in the mountains in the cascades, right? Up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, mm-hmm. down, right. And then the last 17 kilometers of the run is just straight up like a Rocky mountain. It's like running up mountain hood, and it's just, it's brutal, but that's the Christian life, right? Like it is not, Oh man, we, we made it. We're here. No, no, you're going to still have to deal with things and, and life is going to be challenging, but it's only because God is going to continue to use you to like be an ambassador for him. Right. As, as Paul yeah. writes and, and just to go do all these amazing things. And so I, Josh, I, I appreciate your testimony and, um, and just you sharing all these details with us, uh, this evening. Oh,
1: yeah, absolutely. I always say that the goal of the Christian life is not—it's not arriving; it's knowing. The most crucial question we can ask is, "Do I know Jesus?" And I'm like, and it's not sinning less; it's loving more, which yeah. ultimately leads to sinning less. <laughs> yep, <laughs> absolutely so, right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely
2: that, right. Yeah, that—I mean—that's really truth right there. It's not sinning less; it's—it's it's loving more. And I think when we when we really realize that lordship aspect and who He is. You know, listeners, if you guys are are hearing, you're, you're really hearing, to, you know, Josh and what he's saying. All of us, you know, I think we we meet some of these people in church. We meet some of these, these people out of church. And I don't want to sit there and say they have the perfect family because the more and more you get to know people, there is no such thing as normal. A lot of us are abnormal. But, you know, some of us have had much tougher journeys and some of us have, have had stuff of like, why why is it that we can come to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is because that's the that's the Trinity, that's the perfect community. And you know, and so in the brokenness, in the in the fractured relationships, even God meets us there. And and the beautiful thing and what I, I see shining through what you're saying, you're saying to our listeners, Josh, is that he is amazing. And no matter what situation, what we come through is like if you're willing to meet him wherever you're at we have a god you know through his son with his spirit that doesn't say hey josh clean up your act and when you get it all together i'll meet you where you're where you're perfect you know you realize like in in opening matthew like wait a minute per- i'm never going to get there exactly so now you can communicate and let me tell you about my son jesus and so yeah. just just for our listeners and you know picking up the book and a last thought like in the in the essence of you know what they they read it they they glean they they put through the book and they see just an amazing person just telling a story and and that what do you hope our listeners will will glean from this book that you you left them with?
1: Yeah, I you know my deepest hope is this. I mean, at the end of the day, the most important thing is the thing I tell the church every every week, which is on your worst day, Jesus is crazy about you. And I think we forget that sin, our sins. Have been forgiven, like past present, and future, but it doesn't mean forgiven sin can't still wreak havoc in our lives and this is why we stumble it's 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 the law of mixture and what I mean by the law of mixture is that even in the power of the spirit there's still there's still we're still living a sinful world and sinful bodies and sinful minds, but that's still that's god's redemptive plan is that he the only reason he doesn't take us to heaven the moment we get saved is because because he has invited us in all of our brokenness and all of our glitches to to participate in his incredible rescue mission. (laughs) And it's like and I just I just feel like the the peace that he offers is peace in the midst of the storm. And the suffering you're gonna hurt. We're all gonna lose people we love. We all are going to face death one by one. That's it's just a reality. Um, And I think Christians have to be the most realistic and the most optimistic. It's like, we know the days are going to get darker. We shouldn't be surprised by what we just went through for the last few years. Um, And it's so devastating to me to say, like, if God's good, how can we, like, no, we don't need to answer the question of why we hurt. When we look to the cross, we see, I don't know why we hurt. I don't know why the serpent's in the garden. It doesn't tell me, but I do know this. The scripture says that the seed will crush the head of the of the serpent and when i look at the cross i see that i can't i don't get an explanation of why i'm suffering but i do have a god who is willing to enter into it and make it his own and that i think is the great christian hope and the more we have a we don't need a more robust we don't need a theology of suffering we need a theology of the cross that helps us actually push through the difficulty because the best is yet to come
0: absolutely you know god did not remove the red sea he just made a way through it that, yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a perfect example. So, Hey Josh, man, it's uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Lacy Dads podcast. Tell our listeners where they can find your book. Uh, it's called stumbling towards eternity, stumbling toward eternity, losing and finding ourselves in the cross of Jesus.
1: Yeah. You should be able to find it at, uh, at your bookstores. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, you can find it, uh, on Barnes and Noble, all, all the, anywhere that they sell books, uh, it, it, the grateful part of being a part of a penguin <laughs> who owns 40% of the publishing market uh imprint. So um, yeah, so it's it's out there. And you know, I, I was really struggled with actually, I don't like self-promotion very much. And and I have my publisher say, You're not promoting yourself, you're promoting a message that you care deeply about. And that was really helpful for me. And I do think the message is going to be helpful for people, and it does press very practically into what does it mean to live in the light and not try to hide our brokenness or our glitches. And how do we, uh, that the world isn't looking for perfection. It's looking for authenticity. Um, and that isn't defined by reading a Brene Brown book. It's, it's defined by living out openly. I'm, I'm broken, but God loves me and he loves you. And come and, come and stumble with me toward this amazing Jesus um, as we enter into his rescue plan.
0: Amen. And where can people find out more about you? Where, they, where they, can they uh, connect with you on social media?
1: Yeah um I I am st- I'm really a perfectionist so I'm still working on my personal website because it feels wrong um, <laughs> but it is, right. it is it is it is stumblingforeternity.com dot, dot um but you can actually find out more about me at Dorapope, uh, org. all my music's available on Spotify under both Telecast and josh white and Apple Music and all those things so um awesome. yeah
0: Awesome. Well, Hey Josh, thanks for being on legacy dads podcast. We're, uh, we're really, truly uh, grateful for you coming on tonight and just talking about your book and sharing your story and, and, uh, just helping our listeners understand a little bit more about you and, uh, and kind of where the, where this book has come from. Uh, it's clearly, you know, it's clearly God, God at work, right. Working through the dissonance of, uh, of the C and the C sharp. And so, um, and so I appreciate that, Josh, it's uh, it's a pleasure. We thank you for that. And listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, we would ask that you leave a rating or review uh, on whatever platform you listen to, give us a five-star rating. Uh, that way we are able to send a message out to everybody else who is looking for something good to listen to. And if you need to connect with us on social media, you can find us at legacy underscore dads on Instagram, as well as our closed Facebook group. And as always, we continue to pray for you. God bless. God bless.
1: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Legacy Dads Podcast with Dave and Dante, Real Men, Authentic Faith. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit LegacyDads.org and on Facebook.com slash Legacy Dads and on Twitter at Legacy underscore Dad. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on the Legacy Dads Podcast, Real Men, Authentic Faith.